Good morning, Fellowship family. How are we this morning? Good. Hey, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be as emotional uh, this time as I was uh, at Mount Juliet uh, this morning because uh, I got that one out of the way. This is the first time I've taught in church in almost a, uh, over a year and a half, about 20 months. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. The other reason I was emotional at Mount Juliet is they have this clock in the back that's ticking down. Like it's not a time, there's not a time on the wall, it's like a bomb's going to go off. And uh, it just made me nervous. So we're just going to have church now, is that okay? Y'all got, y'all don't, y'all got lunch plans? Okay. Somebody's going, he's not serious, is he? Uh, I really am honored uh, to be with you. I'm so grateful to Scott and Lynn and Aaron for... Uh, giving me this opportunity. And again, as we go along, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the journey that we've been on. Uh, first, I want to introduce to you some of my favorite humans. Uh, my wife, Michelle, uh, and my oldest daughter, Kaylee, are here with me today. Uh, Kaylee lives in East Nashville. We have another daughter, Allison. She's married to my son-in-law, Riley. Uh, they live in Atlanta, and we're hoping to be here today, but he's a worship pastor and leading at a church uh, in Atlanta uh, today, and so uh, we, we didn't get to be with them, so we missed them. And then I walk in this morning at Mount Juliet, not making this up, and my next door neighbors from Colorado, we, we went there years ago to plant a church. They flew in just to hear this message this morning. And so Mander and Mikey, they're over there. Uh, love you guys. Uh, and this is free, not a part of my message, but find yourself some good neighbors, right? It sucks when your neighbors suck, doesn't it? Uh, but if you can get some good neighbors, and they, are, they were the greatest neighbors ever. In fact, in my wife's phone, Amanda's contact says, greatest neighbor ever. Uh, and so, uh, so glad that, that we're with them. Hey, we're going to start in Psalm 23 today, so if you want to turn there uh, in your Bible or on your smartphone or whatever... Uh, go ahead and do that. While, while you're taking care of that, I want to ask you a question that I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to, but I'll ask it anyway. Am I the only one that seems to have this special gift of doing really dumb stuff? You know what I'm talking about? It's stuff that you do or say, and then immediately in your head you go, how messed up am I? Like this stuff never happens to other people, only me, right? Uh, well, just a real quick example from my life. I, uh, several years ago, I was speaking at a student ministry event in Tampa, Florida. And at the end of the session, the, the host youth pastor and the band said, hey, we're going to go out to eat. You want to join us? And I'm like, I'm in. So we drive over to Chili's to get some dinner. And as we go in, the youth pastor, who was a friend of mine, uh, stops at the hostess to get us a table and I say to him, hey, man, i got to go to the restroom. And what I thought I heard him say was, yeah, me too. So I headed back to the restroom. Now, quick timeout, important context for this story. When God was handing out bladders to humans, I think he mistakenly gave me one that belonged to a small kitten. Uh, I have to pee a lot. I'm just saying, okay? Um, God created peace, so we can say that in church. But uh, So I, I go back, and, and I, I go into the, the men's room, and I go into the stall. And just while we're 
having TMI moment here. Uh, the reason I go in the stall is because in men's rooms, they have stand-up thingies. And inevitably, that guy, who could choose from 20 other stand-up thingies, decides to stand by me as if I'm there to speed date and get to know him. Like, I don't want to chat. I just want to do my stuff, right? Uh, so I, I go in the stall, and as I close the stall door, I hear the bathroom door open because there was nobody in there. And, uh, and I, I just assume, oh, it's my friend Jason. So uh, in the stall there doing my business, and um, this thought comes to my mind of something that I said while I was teaching the kids that night that was so dumb. And it made me giggle out loud in the stall in a public men's room. And then the thought occurs to me, it's probably not good to giggle to yourself in the stall in a men's room, right? That's probably not appropriate. But then I'm thinking, you know what? It's just my friend Jason. I'm going to mess with him. So from inside the stall, I call out, hey, cutie, what you doing out there? (laughs) He doesn't answer. So... I call out again, this time in a little bit sweeter voice, and I go, don't act like you don't hear me, big boy. <laughs> Still doesn't answer. So now I'm mad. I'm like, he's not going to play long. So I devised this plan where I'm going to wait till I hear him washing his hands, and then I'm going to bust open out of the stall and scare him so bad he'll go to the bathroom again. You know? So I, I get ready, hear the water faucet. I kick the door open, and I yell, you better answer me when I'm talking to you. 80-year-old man. In case you've ever wondered, 80-year-olds can run fast. Uh, I know some of you are going, what in the world does this have to do with Psalm 23? And uh, directly, I'm going to be honest, nothing. Uh, But indirectly... uh, By the end of our time together today, I think you'll see the tie-in because I feel like God gave me some good news for you today. And it starts like this. Look at this on the screen. God uses broken and messy people. Do we have that? There we go. God uses broken and messy people because broken and messy people are all he has to choose from. Even people who scare 80-year-olds in the bathroom, right? There are no fixed people. There are no bad people or better people. We're all broken and messy. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going through right now, God loves you, and he wants to use you for really good stuff. In fact, no matter where you're at right now, he wants to use you to encourage somebody else's life. So let me say it again. God uses broken and messy people because it's all he has to choose from. And some more good news is that hopefully as we walk our journey with Christ through the years, we'll become a little less broken and messy. And then one day we'll all be together again and nobody will be broken or messy. So, so anyway, um, we've been in this uh, series uh, this summer uh, where we're studying the names of God. By the way, let me tell you this. Um, if you see something on the screen, there, there are a lot of people that are great note takers. And uh, I'm one of those that I never remember my pen and paper or even worse, like I'm taking notes and I'm writing this down, you know, and then they take it off the screen and I'm like, oh, 
had three more words, you know, and I get so frustrated. I'm, I'll never know what that said. So if, you, if something you see on the screen today encourages you, just pull out your smartphone and take a picture of it. I'm serious. Like, you, you can, you'll have it on your phone. You're scrolling through later. It might encourage you later. You can share it with a friend. You can post it on social media. And I know some of you are like, that makes me nervous taking pictures with my phone in church. And I want you to know I, I checked the Ten Commandments this morning, and there's nothing in there about cell phones. So you're good. Just take a picture, and, and, uh, and, then, and then you'll have it. Anyway, we're, we're in this series, and we're studying the names of God, specific names like God is my help. God is my peace. Last week, uh, Scott taught on God becoming our righteousness. And if you missed that, by the way, if you weren't here, go back online and, and listen to that. Uh, he and Lynn both did a, a, a great job uh, of that. And uh, the cool thing about Psalm 23 is that we see several references to several names of God in this one short chapter with only six verses. We see about ten names of God in this one chapter. Today, my assignment is a name called Jehovah Shammah, which means the Lord is there. Some scholars would translate that as the Lord is present. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Uh, just a real quick history lesson on that name. Uh, Shammah actually comes from the very last verse in the book of Ezekiel. And uh, Ezekiel was this guy in the Old Testament. He was a prophet. Around the time of like Daniel and those guys, he, he was actually... Uh, serving the Lord while uh, the Israelites were taken captive into Babylon. And while he was in captivity, the city of Jerusalem was basically leveled, including the temple. And God gave Ezekiel some visions of what the new Jerusalem would look like, what, what the new city would look like. And, and scholars are divided on exactly what that what those visions were. Was it a messianic vision where the new Jerusalem represents Jesus coming to be with us? Or maybe it's about eternity, or maybe some scholars believe it was literally instructions to build the new Jerusalem, which they didn't build it exactly like that. But um, the, the point is, is that he gets to the very end of the chapter, and he gives very specific instructions. And then in the last words of his book, he gives it a name. Look at this in, in uh, Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35. Uh, the Bible says this. By the way, I'm reading out of the NLT today. If it's too different than yours, we should just have it on the screens here. Uh, it says, and from that day forward. We got this, guys? Or no? Are we stuck on that, Ellen? Yeah, let me just go ahead. There we go. All right. Uh, and from that day, uh, the name of the city will be the Lord is there. And the reason that's important is, uh, if you know your New Testament history, especially this era, the Israelites were in this, they were stuck in this pattern where they would follow God, he would have his hands of protection on them. Uh, like Scott taught last week, they would stray away and start thinking their way was better, and God would back away, and it was this back and forth, and, and so Ezekiel's like, prophesying of a day that will come where the Lord will always be with us. He will never leave. And we're living in that day. Like you live, like we're, we're living in eternity right now. Eternity has already begun for those who are in Christ, right? So, so you're living in, in the new Jerusalem, what, what Ezekiel talked about. The Lord is always there. No, no matter what the situation is, 
He's always there. And uh, uh, interestingly enough, we, we only see that word, that one name, Jehovah Shammah, only in Ezekiel, but we see the character of God being present all throughout the Old and New Testament, don't we? I mean, God is there, uh, including in Psalm 23. So let's uh, zoom in on verse 4 uh, together. Psalm 23, verse 4. Uh, guys, I think I sent the whole thing, but yeah, I just want to do uh, verse 4. So let's read this together. The Bible says, Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Let's take those first two words for a second this morning and, and, and kind of drill deep on that. I think those words are important because of this. I think a lot of Christians have no trouble believing that God is with them when things are going good. We feel it, and we'll even throw out a, thank you so much, Lord. Like, this is awesome, God, thank you. But when the wheels come off, if you're like me anyway, and things aren't going so good, I feel like he goes away. I feel distant from him. I, I feel like he's not there. And, and David is telling us that's not true. Even when, even when what? Even when I walk through the darkest valley, and we'll come back and break that down in a minute. Not just any valley, but the darkest valley. He says, I will not be afraid. Why not? Because you are close beside me. You're with me. I'm not alone. Isn't this true? I just thought of this. Uh, I guess going all the way back to when you were a little kid and it was storm outside... It's just better when somebody's with you. When you're walking through something, it's just better when you're not alone. And, and David is saying, even in my darkest valley, I don't have to be afraid because I'm not alone. You're, you're with me. So I, I want to, uh, again, dig a little deeper on this darkest valley thing. Uh, for most of us, we learned this phrase in an older English translation called the King James. And it quoted like this, Yea though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I can remember reading that back uh, a long time ago and thinking, okay, so what's David saying there? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I guess that means if I'm on my deathbed or someone's trying to kill me, then God will be with me. And let's just be honest, in either one of those situations, I would want that to be true. I'm good with that. But that's not what David's saying here. David's using a phrase that Hebrew people would use where they put two Hebrew words together and when they used them in conjunction with each other, it created another Hebrew word that creates this phrase, the valley of the shadow of death that David's talking about. The first Hebrew word literally means valley or deep ravine. Think Grand Canyon, right? That's, that's the description that that word gives. The second word literally translates death shadow or place of the dead. And, and so when, when you use those two words separately, that's how we get the valley of the death shadow. But when Hebrew people would put them together, it created another word, and I, I don't want to get too nerdy on you today, and plus I probably can't pronounce it right, but that word, when they used them together, doesn't mean literal death. It means a place of deep distress and despair a place where someone would have no hope or purpose for living. It means a really dark valley that you're going through. That's what David was talking about. And uh, 
What's even crazier is that word valley. It actually comes from another Hebrew root word, sorry, uh, that means to sink down or to be submerged, like be put underwater, right? Like you're drowning. And so when we read Psalm 23, 4, instead of thinking in our minds, well, if I'm on my deathbed or if someone's trying to kill me, then the Lord will be with me, we could actually uh, read it like this. Put that up on the screen for me, guys. Even when I'm drowning in darkness, God is there. That's good news, isn't it? And just let that settle for a minute. You ever been in a moment where you feel like the season is so heavy you're drowning? As brief as I can, let me tell you a little bit about the journey that we've been on. Uh, so I, uh, I sp- I've spent the better part of the last 30 years as a pastor, a student pastor, teaching pastor, uh, and a high school football coach. Uh, coached high school football for seven years. Uh, but to rewind a little bit, um, I had, like probably many of you, a less than ideal childhood. Uh, pretty uh, broken, dysfunctional, uh, unhealthy home environment that I grew up in. My dad uh, left us when I was really young, and he didn't just leave. He kind of became my antagonist and my enemy for most of my life. Uh, I, was, uh, I was sexually abused by a family member from the age of four until I was nine years old. And like a lot of people, I suppressed that, you know, especially dudes. We don't like to talk about stuff, so we just bottle it up. And by the, like so many people, by the time I became an adult, I was dealing with severe depression and anxiety. And I know those are terms that are thrown around a lot lately, but I'm talking about the type of depression where there were weeks in my life as a pastor and a football coach where it was a victory to get out of bed each day. Like that was a good day. And uh, just privately dealt with it. I was embarrassed. I didn't want to uh, saddle that on my family. I felt like I needed to deal with it on my own to protect other people. I'm sure there are people here today that know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, fast forward to 2012. Uh, I was coaching uh, high school football in Texas, and I had the first of seven major surgeries over a span of eight years. So basically one major surgery a year. I had three shoulder surgeries, elbow reconstruction, knee surgery, and two back surgeries. It's one of those things where I hit 40 years old and my body was like, well, we're done. <laughs> and uh, the, the sad part of it is, is that I found myself deeply addicted to prescription painkillers. And uh, you probably know somebody who's, who's dealt with that and um, suppressed that too. You know, there's embarrassment that comes with that and you... You don't want to drag your family through that, and so you, you just you try to deal with it on your own. And, and like so many people, I started out doing it the right way, but I quickly realized that not only would these pills take care of my shoulder pain, they also took care of the emotional pain. I was like, huh, now here's the trick with opioids. is It's like quicksand. For a moment, they do take care of it. But what they do is they pull you into a deeper depression. It's called rebound anxiety or depression. And it just gets worse and worse. So for seven years, 
off and on, I self-medicated uh, with prescription painkillers. And back then, there weren't regulations on them like there are today, thank goodness. Uh, and I would get a lot of them at one time. And it started out, I would take one and it worked. And then you, you know how it goes. You take one and it doesn't work. And you well, I'll just take two. And two didn't work, well, I'll just take five. And then you wake up one day and you need 15 or 20. And uh, so I uh, walked that journey for seven years, including while we uh, were starting our church in Colorado. And God was so good and did some amazing things. I just wasn't healthy privately. Uh, ended up moving to Oklahoma, long story short, on March 13th, Friday the 13th, 2020, 484 days ago. God gave me the courage to raise my hand and get some help and get healthy. And uh, it was a dark valley. It was dark. I, uh, I entered treatment. Uh, I was in treatment for a total of 37 days. Most of that was at an amazing uh, facility outside of Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, on my second night there, the church that I was pastoring at the time called and fired me over the phone. And I'm, I'm not mad at them. Uh, it just made it darker, you know, because you, you realize I'm going to lose everything. Like, this is going to cost me everything. Uh, and it, it was dark. And so I don't tell you that today for you to feel sorry for me. God is so good. And almost 500 days healthy now. Uh, it, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Praise God, right? Uh, I, uh, I tell you that because as we talk about valleys today, you'll know that I'm not just talking about something I read in a book. I got the t-shirt. And, uh, and I hope it'll, it'll be an encouragement to you. So before we move on, let's talk about valleys for, for a few more minutes here. Uh, first of all, uh, the Bible uses lots of metaphors for dark seasons, not just a valley. This is the one that David's using in Psalm 23, but the Bible uses things like storms and fire and prison and wilderness. Lots of metaphors for times of darkness and struggle that we go through. But here's the great part of all this. You pick your story that, that connects to you the best, your metaphor, but here's, here's the common factor in all of those. God is there. Jehovah Shema. No matter how dark it gets, he is there. He's there with you. Uh, so so here, here's a good question. How, how do you find yourself in a valley? How, how do we get there? And first of all, I think a lot of times valleys are self-inflicted. We make a poor decision. We call that sin. And it lands us in a season of darkness. Sometimes it's mild. Sometimes you lose everything. Uh, Sometimes it's not self-inflicted. Sometimes it's someone else's poor choice. And it lands on you. Uh, and this is a good time to give us a reminder. Check this out on, on the screen. Our sins, poor choices, whatever you want to call it, our sins always have collateral damage. In other words, when you make poor decisions, whether you intend for it to or not, it's going to land on somebody else, usually those closest to you. And you know the hardest part of this journey for me, this last, going on two years, 
is that my family didn't sign up for this. Certainly, you know, my, my girls didn't, and certainly my wife didn't. She was collateral damage, and she's been amazing. In fact, if, if anyone were to ever say, man, uh, aren't you so grateful to God? And, and I, I am. I, I absolutely am. He's, he's the reason I'm standing in front of you today. But the rock star of our story is Michelle. Uh, she has been beside me every step of the way. And so, so you gotta, you got to think through things. Dallas Willard, this old guy who's dead now that I listen to a lot, uh, he, he, uh, he talks about this, this walk with Christ, right? And how as we um, walk with him, our, our hearts become more like his uh, just by osmosis. We, we just have to do the walking with him, and then we automatically start doing things like he would. And he always says, you've got to think about your life in a 30,000-foot view. When you dial in and you go like a little kid in the toy aisle at the store and you just go, I want that. You've got to step back and consider, well, what else do I want? Because I could have that, but it's going to cost me something else. Right? Anyway, sometimes it's self-inflicted. Sometimes it's someone else's poor decision. And then sometimes it's a combination. And I think that's my situation. I didn't choose the trauma that I went through as a kid. That was somebody else's poor choice. But I am a thousand percent responsible for how I responded to that. You see? It's a combination. Partly your choice, partly someone else's sin. Some, uh, sometimes, and this is the part that uh, you might not lo- like about my good news today, sometimes you, get, you find yourself in a dark valley because God takes you there. And we don't like to hear that, right? We, we'll even paint it a little nicer and we'll go, well, God allows us to go into a valley. No, ask Abraham. Sometimes he'll lead you directly into the valley. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about why he does that. The last thing I want to say about valleys, and we'll have this up on the TV too, uh, and this is a sobering reminder. Nobody, nobody gets a free pass from valleys, fires, and storms. Doesn't matter what your economic status is. Don't, it doesn't care how many degrees you have or even how good of a person you are or how much you love Jesus. Nobody gets free pass. Storms, valleys, fires will hit your life. The good news is when it does, you're not alone. God is, is there. Um, I think uh, I got my notes mixed up, I think. I guess not. I guess we're okay. Sorry. Uh, I think there's this myth that uh, we fall for as Christians sometimes. Uh, And the myth goes like this. If I'll just love God enough and do way more good stuff than I do bad stuff, so do a whole bunch of good stuff, do as little bad stuff as possible, then God will be proud of me and he'll keep all the storms and valleys away. Did you ever get taught that accidentally? I don't think the church intentionally did that, but we kind of have that thought. Like, I just need to do a bunch of good stuff and God will protect me. And that sounds great, it's just not reality. In fact, toward the end of Jesus' time on earth, he gathers his disciples together, 
kind of huddles them up, and he tells them the exact opposite. Look with me in John chapter 16. Again, I'm reading out of the NLT, and Jesus has been talking to his guys. He knows he's about to go away, and this is what he says in verse 33. I have told you all of this so that you might have peace in me. Here's what he reminds them. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. Mark it. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. And, and just to put this passage in Stevelish a little bit, I think it's kind of like a locker room talk where, where Jesus knows he's about to be arrested and crucified, so he gathers his guys together and he says, Hey, look, if somebody told you that it was going to be all sunshine and roses while I'm gone, they were sadly mistaken. You can bank on it. There will be really deep, dark valleys. Valleys so deep that you'll wonder if you'll ever smile again. But, chin up and cheer up, as my grandpa used to say, I eat deep, dark valleys for breakfast, right? And I'm going to be there every step of the way, even when you don't feel me, even when you think I'm silent or that I've left. I'm not gone. I'm right there beside you the entire way. Now, here's a real important side note, and then we'll move on. Uh, I think it's important for us to remember that uh, we humans are wired in such a way that we don't trust what we don't know. Isn't that true? So if you want the full benefits of Jesus being with you in those dark moments, you probably need to get to know him. Because it, it gives no comfort when you're in a difficult situation with a stranger, right? It just doesn't have the same impact as when we're with our family. In fact, you ever with your family on vacation or around the holidays and a bunch of your people, like your close people, are in the room, nobody's saying anything to each other, but it just feels good because they're with you. You know, like we're together. It doesn't feel like that with strangers, right? Think about the DMV. <laughs> You're with a bunch of people. You are not alone at the DMV, but it can be very lonely, right? Have you ever been sitting at the DMV and looked around and go, man, the weirdest people come to the DMV. <laughs> and then you think, wait a minute, I'm at the DMV. Uh, it's just better when you get to know him. Even if it's just, Man, even if you are kicking the tires and you're not even sure you believe in God yet, or maybe you've, you, you grew up in church and you kind of faded away or what, whatever it is, just start by taking a five-minute walk with him every morning. Just five minutes and just talk. You say, what do I say? Whatever you want, just like you were talking to a close friend. What if I'm mad? Tell him you're mad. He's a big boy. Just talk to him. Maybe, maybe find a quiet chair in your house somewhere and spend ten minutes just reading the Bible. And don't, no offense, don't, don't read a language that was meant for people 1,500 years ago. And, you know, and, and also, don't start in Leviticus or Lamentations, okay? <laughs> don't, don't do that. Just, just start. And I really believe this. The more you get to know him, the more you'll trust him, and the more you'll feel his presence, Jehovah Shema. So, 
read, pray, listen, whatever it takes. So let's bring it home. Let's land this plane. I want to go back to the, the name Jehovah Shammah because it literally translates the Lord is there. So if in our dark valleys the Lord is there, what's he doing? I, I mean, because I picture sometimes that he's just tapping his foot, looking at his watch, going, can you get the lesson already so we can move on? Or sometimes I think he might have his hands on his hips, shaking his head in disgust, going, are you ever going to get your act together? And here's, here's more good news. That's not what he's done. That could not be further from the truth. He's actually doing a lot while he's with us. We don't always see it, but he's active. Number one, all throughout the Old Testament, we see examples where God is fighting for us. There's a battle going on that you can't see or even detect. And it's not even your battle. It's a battle for you that God is fighting on your behalf. He's not just sitting playing games on his phone. He's fighting for you. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says that he intercedes for us. It says that he sits at the right hand of the Father and pleads on our behalf. And if you're anything like me, sometimes you're like, could you plead harder and get us out of here? I can't tell you how many times, not just in the last few years, but in my entire life walking with Christ that I've thought, can you just do your job better? And what I really mean is I want sunshine and roses. And what he's doing is he's like, I'm doing exactly what needs to be done to give you the life that I need to give you. He intercedes with us. Uh, sometimes he is preparing and arranging behind the scenes to send someone into the valley to walk the journey with you. This morning before I came over to church, I texted one of the staff at Honey Lake Clinic where I went for treatment in Florida. And I just said, hey, first time I've taught in church in 20 months. Thanks for showing up in my darkest moment. And God does that, doesn't he? Like it's amazing how he just sends the right people. In. And by the way, be that person too. Don't just go, hey, send me some people. Be, be that people that shows up in somebody else's dark moments, you'll get as big a blessing as they do. And finally, I think sometimes he's just holding us up. We may not feel it, but he's just holding us. Y'all ever seen this picture? We have that picture, guys. You ever seen that? Like we're just, we get exhausted, and maybe he doesn't say a word. He just holds us, right? And then finally, remember when I said uh, sometimes uh, it's God himself who takes us in the valley, and I said I would explain later why he takes us in the valley, and you could probably come to your own conclusions, and, and you'd be right. He, he takes us into dark seasons sometimes because he needs to get our attention. We listen better in dark valleys, don't we? Uh, but I think the one I want to focus on this morning is I think sometimes he allows us to takes us into dark valleys because he wants to talk to us and say specific, really important things to us. And to illustrate that, uh, I want to turn to John chapter 8. And band, you guys can come on up if you want to. John chapter 8 is the account of the adulterous woman. And uh, I think we've got that on the screen. Yeah, Let, let's read that together real quick while they're making their way up. Uh, the Bible says this, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. Soon a crowd uh, gathered, 
and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? Verse 6. They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him, but instead he stooped and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up and said, Okay, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down and wrote in the dust again. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until it was just Jesus left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. He stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Neither do I. Now go and sin no more. You're caught in bed with a guy that's not your husband. They drag you naked out into a public, think in the middle of a mall or a shopping center. And they throw you down there naked in front of Jesus where he's teaching with all these people gathered around. Just stop right there. Dark moment. Everybody agree? But then add to the fact that this girl knew the time that she was living in. And she knew that her sin back then, and this is true, you can check me on it later. Adultery by a woman back then was punishable by death. Execution. When you add all those things together, probably drowning in darkness. Jesus showed up. Right? And I picture him, after all that, after he sends the Pharisees away and all that, I picture that he goes over and kind of lifts her chin up, helps her to the ground, probably covers her up. And again, I'm translating into Steve here, but I think he says... When he says, uh, neither do I condemn you, I think what he's saying is, I'm not mad at you. I, I know what you did, and I hate your sin, but I'm not mad at you. And then he says, go and sin no more. And when I was growing up in church, I used to read that, and I, I grew up kind of in a legalistic kind of setting, and I used to picture Jesus poking his finger at her when he said that and go, now, don't you do this again. I had your back this time, but if you do this again, I might not be there to save you next time. I don't think that's what he's saying. Here's what I think he was saying to this girl in her darkest moment, and I think it's why he brought you here today. I think he wanted to tell her, it doesn't have to be this way. There's a better way. Like You you don't have to settle for this. I offer you so much more than you're getting out of life right now. God talks really important stuff in deep, dark valleys. I think one of the other things he may have brought you here this morning to remind you of is that you are not forgotten. It's easy to feel forgotten when you're in a valley, isn't it? And and truthfully, you do get forgotten by humans sometimes but you are not forgotten not by God and then what I've been more excited than anything today to share with you is and the reason I've been so excited is because here's how I felt when I got off the phone with my boss in Florida and 
the church had let me go, it hit me like a ton of bricks that I had lost everything. And literally, we, we have. We literally came to Nashville and started over. And there were moments in the early days in that treatment center in Florida where I would take these, there's a lake there, and I'd take these long walks around the lake just over and over again. I remember thinking, man, you have done it now. You have messed up so many times. God's never going to use you again. It's over. And so I get to tell you this morning, and this might be a good one to take a picture of on the screen, it's not over. No matter how dark it feels, the plan that God has for your life to give you a hope and a future and to, to use you, maybe out of your darkest moment, to encourage other people, that plan is still firmly intact. It's not over. Remember where we started today? Silly bathroom stories. Remember, God uses broken and messy people because broken and messy people are all he has to choose from. Let's pray together. God, thanks for always showing up. Thanks for fighting for us, for pleading on our behalf. God, thank you for sending people into the valley to walk with us. Lord, my prayer for every person within the sound of my voice this morning is that they would be encouraged to know whether it was self-inflicted or someone else's poor choice that landed on them or a combination or whatever. The valley they find themselves in the morning, in this morning, is not a death sentence. You do your best work in our darkest moments. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray.